Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Justin O'Connor. Justin, hi. Thanks for being here, Prof. Tell me what you're thinking, or tell us even, what you're thinking about, what's preoccupying you, what matters to Prof O'Connor today. Um, well, randomly, I've just been booking um, uh, a hotel in Shanghai, and um, because I'm going there in May, um, mm-hmm. after a five year, it will be a five year absence. And um, I'm thinking about geopolitics, really. Um, I'm really thinking about what that place will look like after five years. Because mm. um, I have been, as many other people have, because of what events in Gaza and all other places, I'm really preoccupied by the breakdown of, you know, global geopolitics and the its breakdown and what will come after it and those kind of things. So that's kind of what's preoccupying me at the moment, I suppose. And a reorientation from a supposedly unipolar world to a bipolar one, I suppose, is part of that, but with all kinds of crisis, crises in the world going on in which China plays very little role, um, but uh, perhaps would like to or will seek to in the future. Uh, if one yeah. thinks about what's going on in the parts of Africa in which it's not particularly interested, uh, in Yemen, uh, in Gaza and so on, as I suppose one of the issues, and of course its interesting role in Ukraine and Russia. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I, I mean, there's all that which we can go into, I suppose. Um I think I, I think I'm interested very much in at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm kind of working sounds a bit grandiose, but working with the United Nations a little bit. Um, and again, we could talk about that. Um, they're very much interested in um, the idea of um, resetting the the global order in in a way or the global compact they're talking about it because we know that the united nations has been sidelined for a long time and they're really interested in resetting it in some way and they've got a big meeting in september in new york and i'll be trying to kind of insert if you like culture within that as a as a as, a, as an object of policy because it's completely a- absent at the moment so those kind of things, and I'm I'm very much interested. In, I've been reading a lot of books recently over the Christmas, actually, um, just about the post Bandung kind of evolution of of uh, the you know the third world movement, oh. and it's returned now in some ways. So uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's something that's preoccupying me, and the role of culture within that actually, culture as a public policy object, if you like. So could you tell us what? you see as the place of culture in this new international order, the potential revived revised role of the UN, and what culture is, perhaps? Yeah, well, right, yeah, let's start with the, start it easy. Um, well, without sounding too much like a plug, I've just written a book called Culture is Not an Industry. And so I would say culture is not an industry. What I've been quite involved with UNESCO for 20-odd years, I think, uh, certainly since the 2005 convention, which was it's the only convention that covers what we might call the cultural industries. And um, the um, it, it's very much about... Um, it, it, I was really concerned with, with the way in which culture... At some point, at the turn of the millennium, culture was a kind of a way of asserting human development, the role of humanity, if you like, but within development, culture's an essential role as, you know, an expression of truly human development. And the way that very rapidly, within, a, I would say, within 10 years, maybe even less, turning into the creative utilisation of creativity and human creativity as as a way of the the third world, the global south, catching up the global north as a new kind of economy. So I'm, I've, um, I, I'm negatively speaking, I'm very much against that, trying to say what a, what a disaster that's been. Um, not just because it's not true, 
I mean, you know, you know, the, the look at the statistics of global development, you know, 95% of trading global services, global cultural services is, is in the global north. So all that, and it's they've really been sold a, a, a dream. And it is a dream, in fact, quite a powerful dream. But in doing so, they've also uh, eviscerated culture's role as part of their collective imagination, um, which is, uh, to my mind, an, a, an essential part of what we need to happen to overcome the current um, crisis, interregnum, meltdown, whatever. We need to find some way of reimagining the future. And at the moment, we're not doing that. I think culture's got a contribution there. Mm-hmm. And in terms of this cultural imaginary that you speak of, is this something universal or is it something that is actually quite diverse and distinct across different languages, for example? Yeah, I mean, um, I would I would say there is a universal. I've been trying to think about the universal nature. It doesn't mean you know Michelangelo, Beethoven, or whatever. You know, I mean that that's another question entirely. But the idea of going back to the oh, going back to the the anthropological basis, but I don't mean in the sense of a way of life. I mean as a as a process of symbolization, as a process of aesthetic. If I can use that that word that's historically loaded, but a, a way of an aesthetic appropriation of the world, response to the world, and the the link of aesthetics to aesthetic, ethics, and also to, to a, our notion of truth. So, you know, it's like the, the good, the beautiful, and the true kind of thing. Uh, I, I think that is something that is a universal uh, part of what it is to be in the world. I mean, having said that, you know, we're, cultural studies students we know how that's been passed in all sorts of different ways you know it stretches from you know uh quite archaic cultures in some ways and and it can also you know goes right the way through to the enlightenment and colonialism etc but i think something that something we might recognizable recognize as culture even i, I would even use the term art in that way something recognized senses using symbols to articulate how we should be in the world what how we should be in the world and act in the world in truth and in in some kind of rightness i think that's quite fundamental uh, and we've kind of historicized that out of out of the the out of the picture and i think some some bringing bringing of that back into the pictures i think is quite important so in, in an ironic sense, perhaps you're opposing this instrumentalization of culture because it actually has in part failed to be very instrumental. Uh, certainly in the, in the economic sense. Well, I mean, it's it's been very useful for global platform companies. You know, uh, I mean, they, they, they love it. They love lots of creatives in Nairobi or in Santiago or in wherever that they, they, they like it. And it's, um, but it, it's in terms of a robust, let's say, robust creative economy in the in the global south and also in non-metropolitan parts of the global north. In terms of that, it's clearly an abject failure. Um, Could you just tell so, us yeah. a little bit about the idea of the creative industries? It's one that you engage in this book that I had the great good fortune to read as an advanced copy. And while many of our listeners in some parts of the world will be familiar with this concept, in the United States, it's really not a very big deal. And a lot of subscribers to the podcast uh, live there. So perhaps could you outline for us what this thing is? You do it very effectively in the introduction to your book and giving it a genealogy. Yeah. I mean, creative industries was an invention of the 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 UK Labour Party. It's got its roots, as we know, in, in, in Australian kind of policy thinking. But it was pretty much codified by by the UK New Labour at the end in 1998, let's to put a date on it. And and it's it suggested um not just the economic weight of culture, 
that's been that was discussed in all sorts of ways prior to that you know in terms of its uh, you know employment uh, in, uh, the way we generated tourist dollars etc cetera, etc cetera. but creative economy said something else it said that creativity was the driver of a new kind of economy and of course central to this new driver was a, a, an idea of culture even of art and that the, the creativity was exemplified in art and culture, but it would it, it was now all or should be all pervasive across the economy as we move from an industrial to a post-industrial economy. So, in in, in it, to to my mind, it's highly problematic in that it's impossible to pin down. Um, you, you know, everything is everything becomes creative, and so it's very tricky to say, well, this is the creative economy. Uh, and this is not an older idea of cultural industries, which I think is it's much more uh, not not uh, uncontroversial. That, that it's quite clear that many parts of culture are highly economically profitable. They are industries in a, a very specific kind of industry. They're not quite normal industries, but they've been there since. Well, I think of Hollywood. Think of the recording industry. Think of television and radio, et cetera, et cetera. They've been around for a century or more and they are highly commercialised and they commercialise themselves in certain ways. That's not what the creative industries say, talks about. They talk about uh, it's an industry of creativity, which is somehow, as I say, all pervasive. It's part of many different things. It's part of financial services. It's part of software and that somehow what we what we should be doing is gathering statistically, usually gathering this creativity and those involved in it in a kind of uh, schema whereby this is a creative economy, and if we promote this, we generate wider creative inputs outputs. And so that's yeah, that's that's very helpful. And you mentioned China earlier, which for some time has had this slogan from manufactured in China to created in China as part of its attempt to move into this post-industrial utopia. And, of course, the Inter-American Development Bank adopted the fantasy of the orange economy some time yeah. ago uh, with the Netherlands as its benchmark, supposedly 10% of gross domestic product they are coming from creativity in inverted commas. And, you know, even the most successful industrial producers of culture in Latin America generally don't get more than three or four percent of their GDP from, from mm. culture. But um, the Inter-American Development Bank has, I think it's fair to say, quietly dropped that. Yeah. Uh, the place where it really took off was Colombia, and that's been a disaster, and it's been loudly dropped. Mm. Is it still a fetish in Asia, in Australia, in, in Western Europe? Or is it something that you think you may almost be burying with your new book? Yeah. Well, uh, the, I mean, the orange economy is very interesting. I mean, uh, as, as you've suggested, it comes from the, the, the development bank there. And, of course, one of the co-creators went on to become the, um, was it, he was the president of Colombia, I believe. Yes, the, um, the, the co-authors of that fantasy document, uh, one um, became the president and the other was appointed by him to run the orange economy, but then was sent off in disgrace after repeated failures to become Colombian ambassador to Germany. Right, right. So, and, and uh, you know, this, it, it was... Uh, Amazing that UNESCO adopted this. Uh, you know, they they welcomed it, and the British Council they all went to Colombia. Great, this is really good. And I've heard it mentioned in many other parts. But of course, he what the president was a protege of uh, quite a right wing president who had he'd been incumbent for quite a long time or worked behind the scenes for quite a long time. And the first thing the new president did is it is it Perez. Uh, um, is Petros. Get rid of Petros is the Petros. new president who's the yes. first yes. ever progressive Colombian president. Yeah, who immediately got rid of it. So it's had a political dimension that the, the way in which cultural policy, especially global cultural policy, has evolved is quite depoliticised. You know, who's going to argue with creative economy? It's creativity. I mean, it's 
nice people in VR glasses. It's beautiful looking, you know, fashion designers in, in Burkina Faso. You know, why would you be against this? But in fact, it's highly political in, uh, in that way. Um, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is, uh, I mean, just going back to China where you started, is that this was an, the creative economy was an export and it was very much a British led export, very much driven out by the British Council, in fact. Um, and it still is actually they're they're all over the uh, this but uh, but China very quickly realized it was a, a dud, so they used creative economy to uh, promote uh, kind of creative clusters you know doing up old buildings old uh, uh, old factories for instance in Shanghai, but in fact they quickly realized where the the action was, and the action is. An industrial policy. So the similar things happen with South Korea. You have to have to invest in supply chains. Big invest in uh, you know education. You know China put billions and billions into, let's say, broad arts, design, education. They've they've reorganised supply chains, etc. They know where the global exports are. That and of course, famously, they cordoned off the internet and developed their own national champions. They basically took a developmental economy approach to commercial culture, which is kind of what Korea did. And it it, it, it works to a certain degree. And China's not very good on content at the moment, but it, it will get there. And it, interestingly, they, they realised that, the of course, the, the, the most successful cultural policy, globally speaking, by far, is the country that's never mentioned, which is the US. And the US developed their cultural economy, not through creative fairy dust in old factories. I mean, there's some of that. It's very nice. Artisanal cheese, you know, brew your own pale ale. What they do is make sure that they have a tight control over intellectual property. They insert it into into various uh, bilateral trade agreements. They're the ones who know where the, the you know the power of control lies, and of course, I, I believe it's five or six out of ten of the world's glo- biggest global country com- companies in a, in any field are dealing um, intellectual property, cultural based intellectual property. You know, Amazon, Facebook, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they've been extremely successful. Uh, and to then for the British Council and others to go around talking about creative clusters and the, which, as we all know, they're, they're nice little areas of cities where we all go for cups of coffee and a muffin when we're touristing, but they have very little impact on the actual economy of the countries. Wow. So it's sort of been dumped in much of Latin America, dumped in China, but it's also interesting in that, as you say, it derives from a social democratic base in the Labour parties in Britain and Australia initially. Is this one more case of neoliberal madness, which is actually not just about deregulation, but about government intervention in very particular ways, being forwarded by the parliamentary left uh, in, such, in a way that the parliamentary right would not have been able to do? because it would have met from intense resistance by lovies, as they're called in Britain. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, you know, across the 90s in in the UK and and elsewhere, the the cultural lines were, you know, on the left were in favour of art and culture in a general sense, probably in a more urbane, popular cultural end of things, Mm -hmm. uh, avant-garde maybe, whereas the, the right were where they... They were more, you know, they they sought high culture and or certainly traditional culture that would reinforce that. Um, I think the that what what um, what the social democratic parties or let's say New Labour and and of course La- the Labour in uh, Australia, but others as well began to do. I mean, taking off from Clinton, taking off from a bit later Schroeder. Uh, of course, they they are concerned with. Um, the working class, the deindustrialized working class, and so their their embrace of the cultural industries, which 
began at the end of the 80s, but their gradual embrace of it was about, here's a source of employment among our people. You know, here's a possible way in which, you know, education, education, we can bring a, a re-educate, a, a de-industrialized, certainly the younger members of the of the working class or the de-industrialized classes, we can bring them into a new productive economy. And it worked with a kind of an embrace of popular culture. You know, this wasn't string quartets and Shakespeare. This was, you know, Britpop. This was bands. This was, you know, a funky kind of um, art, avant-garde art, you know, the whole kind of... Um, New British art people, etc. So the, it was it was quite a powerful imaginary, and I would use that way. And, and I think many countries across Europe and in in as it was exported into East Asia and elsewhere, it's a powerful imaginary because you can become modern, you know. And I, and I, I, it's a way of becoming modern. It's a way of it, of making a living, hopefully. But you're somehow gaining access to something that's not moribund, not backwards, not kind of, it, it was actually, uh, it had a, you know, when you sat in your creative hub in Nairobi or in Shanghai, when I first went there in 2005, there were young people there who were participating in, in a global imaginary of a, of a new kind of economy in which people like them would be valorised. And, I, and I, so that's why I, I don't dismiss it as this kind of, evil kind of reductiveness it was a real imaginary that was that was i think uh, well increasingly traduced by the reality of what that kind of work in those mm-hmm. kinds of sectors one of the sub themes not haunting your book but mentioned in your book as in a sense a good object is the greater london council in the 1980s under ken livingstone before the council was destroyed by margaret thatcher where Cultural industries were developed partly in the name of what you're saying, but also with the desire, as I understand it, to increase opportunities for minorities and women. So Mm. they didn't just want an industrial policy that worked for the lost imaginary agent of history, i.e. the white male proletarian working in a factory, but rather would encompass the new working class, which would include yeah. those figures, but plenty of others as well. It seems to me that on the one hand, that was an extraordinary success and is rightly valorized as such. On the other, it opened the door for this apparent instrumentalism, instrumentalization yeah. culture that maybe wasn't so successful, although, as you say, it would be silly to junk all of it. So what about Australia in all of this? You said that it was important in the 90s, and it seems to me that it's one of the places where, as in Britain, universities have really bought into this creative industries story Mm. very, very thoroughly uh, and are deeply committed. And at some level, it seems as though it is giving what was once called the humanities an apparent relevance, giving culture Mm. a new status that is not a welfare status, although that can be part of it, but is rather, as you say, an important agent in the economy. But what has it actually produced and what happens after it, do you think, in places like Australia and the UK? Yeah. Uh, No, I think think you're right. I mean, it's been really problematic. I think it's happened more in the UK uh, and also in other places, such such as the Netherlands and parts of Germany now, and even France is beginning to pick up. But it's, it's... be more important in the UK because there's money gone into it, um, and and even with the the you know the since the Tories took over in 2010, although usually they would say no, we'll get rid of this program, they actually they've they actually kind of bought into it, and also um, after Brexit really began to put not serious money in any in terms of big industrial policy, but certainly in terms of anything cultural, they began to put money in, into it. And it's really, um, it's really, I think it's turned the head of many in academia because people in UK academia, where's your industry impact? You know, where's your relevance? All those kind of things. So to my mind, it's been quite corrupting. Very difficult to find a 
critical people critical of the creative industries that, or creative economy. Australia, it's less so because, of course, you know, with what I call the Brazilianization of Australia, you know, basically, it it it's now a, a resource resource extractive country. You know, it, it floated on the rise of China with its primary sending primary products to China. No, but the coalition doesn't care about the creative industries. I mean, it, you know, you can barely get a word out of them about that pre- previous this or the right wing. Uh, they weren't interested in it, not even in the creative digital. So we had, as you know, we had Malcolm Turnbull, who was a bit kind, left of centre, would we say, but certainly he was kind of a modernising prime minister who floated the idea of digital, the digital economy. It, 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 it went down like a lead balloon. The real money is, is in, in the extractive things. So it's not as attractive uh, in Australia just because the money's not on the table. And Labour, as they come in, uh, as they've come in, they've not revived creative economy. They've Their latest cultural policy barely mentioned it, actually. It was mostly about its social benefits, uh, mental health, telling Australian stories, uh, Indigenous culture, those kind of things. They really significantly did not really talk about creative industries. So in a way, yeah, it's kind of different. And is that the sort of development that you would welcome? Is that the sort of thing that you were hoping, uh, for example, you could help to propel into United Nations discourses and missions? It's. I, I think it's a. It's a step in the right direction because, but that it's what when you see the reality, what 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 real consequences are from this, and and so there's a lot of fine words, the justification of culture in in its own terms, so to speak. But in reality, it's still locked into um, uh, a, a framework of, of, you know, economic justification. You know, once you get beyond the glossy pages, the re- you know what, uh, you know, the states are looking for hotel bed nights. They're looking for tourism. They're looking for to boost uh, culture. So, music industry is always a good kind of test of this. So, music is so. Um, it's you know seen as a creative industry, seen as a because it's so-called commercial. You know Taylor Swift, one billion dollar uh, tour. But in fact, ninety-nine percent of the people in music, as you know, are um, you know hand-to-mouth people. Can make a living from it, but it's really tough and getting it tougher. And certainly in a place like Australia, where you know it's hard to do tour. You know, do put on a tour is harder in Australia than it is in other places. So those kind of things, uh, and yet. The Creative Australia, they adopted the name, snuck, snuck away in the back of the document, but they're now Creative Australia, not the Arts Council, uh, not the Australia Council. So it's a creative, and they're promoting music. They're talking about, you know, export of music, you know, uh, new, uh, like a big outfit, looking at how we can export and how we can... In- so they've still got that industrial language, really. So it's... It's kind of flip flop between a kind of a feel good thing about here we've got culture telling Australian stories, but when it comes to actually the more, if you like the the, the commercial end of it, it's it's an industry, and they're not really thinking hard about how they might promote it. Um, film is a similar situation. Is film about making Thor, you know, which is you know up in the Gold Coast or in in the South Australia, they, they've attracted all these American productions, uh, Marvel kind of productions. Or, or is it about making decent kind of, uh, not necessarily art house, but decent kind of uh, Australian films, supporting Australian writers and creatives? And they, they still haven't decided on which they want. Um, it's mostly about, it's mostly the first, you know, bringing in um, foreign productions and tax, tax breaks, et cetera. But getting away from the economic so that, sorry go ahead go ahead so just to finish to go back to the to the if you like to the greater london council what what was interesting about the greater london council is yes they were talking about you know how do we promote this new kind of post white working class male working class culture how can we promote it but they realized they had to engage with how it's made you know the economics of it if you like the the reality the and and they were take but they were looking to um you know the 
developments around Lucas Aerospace, which back in the 70s about workers' ownership, they're all going off to Yugoslavia, you know, which, uh, or they, in the 70s, and workers' control, all those kind of things. So they, they still had this idea of can we pull back industry and make it, you know, promote cooperatives, et cetera, which is what they did with Rough Trade and the, the lots of gay, gay and lesbian uh, video makers, et cetera. And but what what we've what we've got with um, the current kind of culture, cultural economy is that while we we might say oh well we 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 do want to promote the cultural end of it there's no thinking about what they actually do with the, that commercial end which is now far more commercial far more global far more monopolized than it ever was and of course far more pervasive now that it's um, based on you know it's it's in our homes through the internet so the in the in the book it's not i'm not trying to say oh forget about industry bad horrible industry it's like well if you do want to you you have to confront the fact that it is an industry in many areas but you have to confront it in a way that you know not to oh well how can we grow it but how do we bring back the industry of culture to to actually do what it's supposed to do serve as a part of a public policy like health and education which are also big industries in, in that sense, but we don't yet quite see them as as purely as, you know, let's promote health because it employs so many people. Let's promote education because it employs so many people. They get in there in some ways. So my thing is how do we bring culture back to say, well, how do we make culture do what we want it to do, whatever that is? In terms of the whatever that is, I wanted to ask you about how one can make arguments for culture that are not just about it brings in this balance of trade uh, surplus that we want or diminishes the deficit of in the balance of trade and not just about how many people it employs, although, you know, as, as we both note, I think those things are important, but rather the slightly less tangible things uh, that it might make for a more pacific nation or city, that mm-hmm. it might make for progress in terms of things like relations of gender or diminishing violence, those sorts of social goods that are supposed to be associated with culture, mm-hmm. how does one specify those and how does one enumerate them in order to convince bean counters in yeah. institutions and in the bourgeois media that these things matter? Yeah. Well, what I try to do is going through, I mean, I've, I've used the, what, I, what I've called, not just me, I've taken it from a group in Manchester called the Foundational Approach. Um, and they, like, what, what are the basics of a decent society? Uh, you know, basics, you know, the fancy stuff we can leave. So it, it's, for them, you know, as I say, it's, it's basic infrastructure, Basic services, they, they and they they call that the you know the foundational economy of you know not just the pipes and the whether that's internet or water but education, health, social services, those kind of things. So you know I began to say, well, what would what would culture look like? Just if we say it's part of the basic some of the basic things we do as humans, and 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 that's what I tried to look at that. Now, since certainly since the pandemic. Um, that's concern about that has accelerated, and a lot of it's now there's so much talk now about social infrastructure, and you know even the government's interested in social infrastructure. The UK government, you know, which has done so much to rip it up actually, but they're very much concerned with you know well, you know if you if you take indicators of what it is to have a a livable life, livability, it's about disposable income not just wages but how much you've got to spend how much households have to spend mm. uh, it's about what kind of services they get because that's a, such an important contribution to to your livability but also about the social infrastructure what is the access to parks to community centers to libraries to those kind of things that you would consider well that that makes that part of the world quite livable and the just foregrounding those as absolute as essential and basic, and that it's 
actually people's right to have an access to those basic services. I think that's an important shift of the argument. Um, I mean, it's something that outside of the you know global north, or maybe, let's say outside of Anglo-Saxon world, it's kind of accepted. You know, and I don't just mean France and Germany. I mean, I've just come back from Chile. You know, of course, Latin America ex- expects those kind of things to happen. Same in other parts of Europe. So asserting that this is this is you know what what are our rights about access to these basic forms of culture uh, that they're part of local livability? You know that's that's the starting point that I took, and and then we and we build from there really. And and I think that is a that is an argument that's beginning to get through because it's quite clear as you as you say. I mean, uh, you know, the the negative side of what you said, the the kind of persi- the growth of kind of real the the lack of lack of social capacity, mm-hmm. the lack of lack of social connectivity. You know, this isn't just this is real a real thing, and it's happened. You know, as we know from since the eighties. Uh, the sense that that we we no longer connected, not just to each other, but also to governments. So you know, it's a Peter Mayer's idea of the void. It's quite clear all around the world, and it has been since two thousand sixteen and before that the connection between government and the people is, is you know is very tenuous. Uh, you know, it's part of our, what's happened to our democracies. So how do we? I mean, you talk about how do we build. Uh, you know, societies in which, you know, the relationships between genders, between people and more generally, you know, uh, somehow ameliorated or put onto a, a certain kind of level. But so to, you know, our idea of citizenship, you know, how can we build an idea of citizenship if we do not have access, even at the most basic level, to libraries, to parks, to those spaces in which we encounter other people? And many parts of, many parts of uh, of the UK, but many parts of the world do not have them, you know, or they're riven with all sorts of kind of uh, threats of violence and things. So the social infrastructure is a, such a big thing now to invest in social infrastructure. What I've been arguing, we've got to include culture in that social infrastructure. One of the ironies, the awful ironies of the Tory party, the Conservative Party in Britain, is that it, rabbits on endlessly about devolution, not uh, to Scotland or Mm. Northern Ireland or Wales, but in terms of decentralising power. It wants, you know, sending Channel 4 to Leeds, sending Mm. Radio Bloke to Salford, all these sorts of things, giving mayors more power, creating police commissioners, at the same time as it has essentially destroyed local government local mm-hmm. councils in Britain. I mean, because the irony I and mean, the, the thing about the UK that people who don't live there may not realise is that it's incredibly centralised in terms of where taxpayers' money goes, but it's very decentralised in terms of the delivery of services that derive therefrom. And what the Tories have done in terms of their attempt to shrink the state is really to reallocate income to the ruling class. And that has meant cutting all the kinds of things that you're talking about that are provided by local government. And that's everything from giving old people someone to talk to, to library hours, to the upkeep of parks, to the opportunity to use playing fields that are sustained in a credible, competent way by local councils. Uh, This is really an incredible disaster and a disgrace. And, of course, it goes back to Thatcher, but it got expanded under David Cameron, and his mm. minions and mignonettes and the monstrosities of that government. Anyway, rant over on my part. But yeah. I think that, that that part of this business that you're talking about, which is, in a sense, the absence of the valuable bits of government in people's everyday lives, yeah. that's incredibly significant. And alongside that is a media issue, which is the absence of local media in people's lives. In the yeah. United States, hundreds, hundreds of urban and suburban newspapers have shuttered their doors in the last five years, not just because of the internet, but because of the fact that they have been bought not by traditional media proprietors, but rather by investment funds that are interested in how they can strip assets and sell them off. So it seems to me, sorry, this is not quite a question, it's back to a second rant, that 
part of the problem that you're identifying comes from a claim to be offering more devolved government, which in fact means cutting the role of government. And part of it derives also from a conjuncture in which traditional media owners, for all their horrors, have been displaced. You could say the same thing about football in the UK, where the traditional vaguely benign factory owner of a team would you know, be the, the boss of things to the point now where, for instance, in the English Premier League, I think half the clubs are owned by US money and others are owned by a whole variety of different consortia from around the world. And any local connection is severed. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I mean, yes. Uh, I mean, the UK is particularly pernicious in this way. I, I think, the, as you said, the devolution and Osborne, George Osborne, started at the Chancellor, the devolution, and it's like, well, here you are, you wanted power, here you are, but you're not getting any money. It it was from hell, if you like, and and we're seeing what's happening now with, uh, and I'm, I'm in Australia, but, you know, you, Birmingham, I think uh, Crewe recently, but a whole range of local councils are bankrupt because they they have to legally spend things on homelessness and certain kind of healthcare uh, uh but they have no money. So that was pernicious. And on top of that, you've got the kind of more ideological window dressing where, uh, so Manchester, I'm originally from from Manchester, and that's one of the success stories, so-called, because it's, you know, let's get rid of the English National Opera from London. You know, we don't want it all in London. Let's give it to, give it to uh, Manchester. What kind of money will come with that? Why Manchester, the great, you know, popular culture city, wants an opera house? It, not, not, not us. But those kind of things are happening all the time. There's the talk of devolution, uh, just as there's talk of leveling up. You know, we're going to bring up all the old deindustrialized places. We're going to bring them up to our level. Nobody believes that. I don't, don't think. Uh, maybe people in those constituencies do, but quite clear, there's no plan how to do that. Uh, but culture acts as a very good window dressing there because, of course, uh, and I'll come on to some of that perhaps later, but, of course, doing things like devolving big cultural institutions, the cultural institutions don't like it because they have to move to places they don't know, like Manchester, probably one of the better places, but um, but it, it's, it allows the idea of, oh, well, this is, you know, we're, we're devolving culture, whereas, in fact, the, the reality is they've cut it across the board, and as you say, it's people's libraries, uh, people's access to parks, to playing grounds, all those kind of things that have just disappeared. And and I, I will say this, uh, you know, because I come back now and again to uh, to um, to the UK, and I came after the pandemic. I think I had not been there for two two and a half years. You know, Melbourne lockdown, etc. Uh, I was shocked. I was really shocked at what had happened to that country, you know, because it, you know, you can see that, see what happens when you suck out those resources. You see what happens, it happens very slowly, but it's very, to, to jump cut by the occasional visit, you can really see it. Um, and I, I, last summer I spent um, uh, two months in Tours in France, not a glamorous city particularly. You know, it's got some old chateau, but, you know, not a glamorous city, not really a tourist city, not rich, not poor. The You know, the level of just everyday funding for the live bands along the river, you know, lots of volunteer kind of choirs in the old cathedral. You could see there was not just money in the system, but also a, a tissue of volunteering and cultural activity that was happening there that you would not see in in UK cities anymore. I don't, can't speak for Scotland, perhaps, but you, you wouldn't see that. So, no, absolutely, what what's happened? And, and it, the statistics are there in um, Danny Darling's recent book, um, Shattered Nation, where you just read, I mean, it's just statistics after statistics. You can see what's happening there. But as I say, I think it's a it's a it's a more general problem, not just the UK. And I think. Uh, the, the 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 way in which culture has been privatized, and you know, we talk about you mentioned the media. Uh, 
yes, it's the it's the media, and we know that's had a ta- technological dimension, but the inability to address that, you know, yes, okay, so advertising has gone on somehow. Uh, what are we going to do for local media? Nobody asks that question. Uh, you know, I'm mean, beginning to now. That, um, but uh, more fundamentally, you know, how is it? How on earth have we allowed the one of the biggest revolutions since Gutenberg, as we all hear from California, how have we allowed the internet revolution to be controlled by a bunch of sociopaths in California? I mean, that's going to be the one of the biggest kind of question marks against the last 40 years. Uh, and and that's really coming home to roost in all sorts of all sorts of ways now. And uh, again, just finally, I can't resist speak, speaking about the football thing because I you know I was a Manchester United supporter. Um, the way in which the popular popular and it really is popular culture, you know, the way in which that's been allowed to be bought and sold. I mean, it, yeah, as you say, it's just a dis- disgrace. And, you know, um, the, I mean, city Manchester City is run by, is it, um, consortium that out of uh, Dubai, Manchester United's run by, you know, the Glazers who just see it as a cash cow. And yet there it is. You know, that's that's how popular culture being allowed to happen like that. So those kind of things, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's incredible, Um how and it's a particularly virulent in the UK, but it's happening elsewhere. Tony Blair, not just a war criminal, but an economic one as well. So, if we can uh, yeah. go, go back to the book in the last ten or so minutes available to us, could you tell us how you did the research for it? How does Prof O'Connor sit down or walk about, whatever it may be, to find things out? Well, I've been, I've been involved. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's a mere culpa. Um, I was involved in in the early nineties. I, I, me and a, a colleague, we did the second ever cultural industries employment study. We did it in Manchester, and for me, I was coming coming out of the GLC kind of idea, uh, very much involved in it. So I've been in involved in the, if you like the statistical aspects of this for a long too long i can read as i can read the statistics it, it's very easy now yeah i can decode them i don't even have to go in the into the back end i can see what's going on so i've, I've known that some of the statistical things and a lot of the arguments because I, i've made those arguments so in in some ways i've i've it's me pulling back from that coming mm-hmm. out of that so so I'm aware, if you like, I know the arguments from the inside. I know that the statistical things from the inside. I, but I've also, uh, you know, worked a lot outside of outside of well, outside of the UK in Europe. I did. I was there in in Russia for about four or five years, back and forward uh, in the in the early years, and I, and I've spent over a decade researching in China, and I, I wrote a book about China came out in the pandemic year 2020 um so it's for me it's it's very much uh, coming out of a kind of a real encounter with these creative industry projects with cultural policy agencies with uh, the way in which they statistically and uh, narratively kind of make their claims um and putting that against some of the deeper concerns coming out of cultural studies, and but not just cultural studies, philosophy and those things, and historical, if you like, political economy. I, it's really trying to put those together and say, well, what is going on here? And, and this is, I mean, this is what sparked me off very much. Um, so, uh, to put it boldly, for instance, you know, it's quite clear that neoliberalism is finished as a political project. Doesn't mean we'll go get anything better necessarily, but it, it, nobody now makes those arguments not joe biden you know not not the chinese but well, they never did but you know so neoliberalism as a coherent economic strategy this is the underpinning for geo uh, uh, globalization all these things that we're in a different kind of universe now which we, which some of the lines are not clear but we are in a different universe and yet here's culture the creative economy after the pandemic talking about you know we're going to bounce back better we're going to up they're still i call them the jurassic park of new neoliberalism 
they're the only ones standing now who believe in it about entrepreneurism bottom up you know if you if you do a bit of skills training you're going to generate this startup economy all these kind of things are a real disaster and i what struck me is why is it that you know i'm reading you know political economy about you know you read adam twos or whatever about the radical transformations the failures of of uh, the failures of neoliberalism, the rise of populism, you know, which is the other strand, you know, uh, a whole range of alternative political movements, heterodox economics. You come to culture, certainly those involved in cultural policy, and it's a dead zone. It really is a dead zone. Cultural policy is, I think, it's been absolutely captured by the creative economy and the the money that comes out of uh, academia to do that. Unable to recognise that the world has radically shifted, and I'm, I actually get quite embarrassed about, uh, especially the more cultural policy end of things, because they are so depoliticised. They are so, I think, intellectually moribund. They are so unconnected with the kinds of transformative energies that we might associate with 1990s, or certainly early 1990s cultural studies or other movements, whereby this was part of a global transformation. Now it's kind of like a death rattle of administrative tra- transformation. So uh, I suppose in this book, it's really um, it's really tra- how to boil those things down, that that experience down into a coherent set of arguments. Really, so it's uh, it, to answer that really. So it's not it's not based on that. I mean, it's written partic- It's written to be kind of accessible. Um, Fourteen pounds available at all good bookshops, uh, but it's written to be to be a, 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 a approachable. It's not full of statistics. It's not full of, you know, uh, interview basis. But it comes out of my too long experience in this kind of world, really. Uh, and I had to try yeah, and stop shouting. In a way, it's about rethinking <clears throat> your own past, not your, not just yours, but others too. And yeah. recognizing the pluses and the minuses of that intellectual and political trajectory and its policy correlatives. Great. So I think that's very important. And I think that it, it is certainly written in an accessible way that I think is very, very valuable. Danny Dawling's work, of course, is accessible, but sometimes you can get swamped by the numbers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I, I found that. In his last nothing, I particularly disagree with, but it, it's like, where's the narrative arc on this? You know, it's like, yes, I agree. So, and I've got a couple of questions more, uh, Prof Justin, if I may, and then I'd like to throw it to you to add anything that we've not discussed that you would like to mention. Okay. So, the first question is, uh, what's next for you? You said that you're going back to Shanghai after five years. What's the next project, as it were, in research terms? Well, I, I think I've got, I think I've got three actually, but maybe China is the fourth. But I do want to pursue some of the ideas in this book around the foundational economy. So I call it the foundational economy. So I would say it's a foundational approach. So I'm, I'm really getting sucked down the wormholes, looking at ideas of productivity, looking at ideas of GDP looking at the way that the actual mechanism of public policy works, it's, it's quite incredible how far we've gone in the last 40 years. It's, it's quite difficult to speak uh, speak of certain things, of certain things like culture, outside of the framework we, we landed with. So I want to pursue that and want to try and say, well, what alternative ways of speaking about that? So I will, I will keep doing that. But on the other hand, I, I'm, I'm also very interested in the global level, um, and about why, if you if you like the basic narrative, which is, you know, the the foundational document of modern global cultural policy, came out of a meeting in Mexico in 1982. And it's very much about culture as an anthropological thing, not just arts and letters. It was about culture and development, professionalization of the art. Very good, tick tick tick, fine. And yet, I'm struck by the fact that it, it came as almost exactly the same year as the collapse of the um, third world movement. You know, it comes it comes to 1982, you know, the Volker show. So we, we've got this idea, we've got a, a, culture, a global cultural 
on the defeat, the historical defeat of the, the, the Third World Liberation Movement. And I'm still trying to get my head around that and what that that might mean. Um, and uh, I suppose the, the third bit is kind of perhaps more personal. It's coming, going back and looking at, uh, I want to write a book on Joy Division, which I'm sketching out, um, or rather the years 1978 to 1982, what, what that meaning of popular modernism, deindustrialization, the cusp of neoliberalism, et cetera, what that what that means and how we can approach it these days and the, so that that those that doesn't make projects for the next year i suppose wow that's a lot to be juggling but at least it means if you're getting burnt out on one you can move to another with some crossover but not an absolute one and so my last yeah. question justin is to ask you this it's to project things forward five or ten years what picture do you see? Um, well, it just depends which which of the two, you know, was it red pill, white pill, or whatever? Blue, you know. <laughs> um, I, 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 it's whether we, I mean, globally speaking, I think we we, we all know what the the challenge is, and it's I, I think it's whether. A, they're not. It's whether America can step back from what it is doing at the moment, which is essentially saying we are the global hegemon, and our job is to take down any challenges to that. That that's the single biggest threat to world peace. I'm not saying there are not others, you know, over in Russia and things like that, but they are the single biggest threat to world peace. That and part of what's going to happen in the ten years is can they can they step back in such a way, both to avoid. Armageddon, but also to allow collaboration around climate change. So those those kind of things. So I mean that's a that's a very big geopolitical thing. In in my own field, a smaller field, I would like again culture to be to return in formal informal terms to what it was in the nineteen forty eight Declaration of Human Rights. You know. Everybody has the right to fully participate in culture, or, and I quote him in the book, T.H. Marston, you know, everybody has a right to fully participate and enjoy the, the fruits of civilization in that way. And we know that back in the 40s, that might have meant, you know, Michelangelo and Beethoven. I still think people should be able to have that, you know, they should have the education and ability to access that. But we know it's the way how we understand full participation in culture is. is you know, we've moved on forty years, but to for for states to allocate a significant budget, it's never going to be as big as culture, uh, um, education, and health, but a significant budget to say access to culture, however defined in that way, access to culture is an essential part of that citizenship in that country, and we must, uh, you know, we must allocate budgets accordingly. That uh, that that. That seems to me a, a, a good goal, for, certainly for the next ten years, if we can get it like that. Um, and I, and but that will mean for many countries taking on some of the global platform companies, and that's uh, that's going to be a really big challenge because America again is not going to allow that to happen easily. But it needs to be done, and there are different ways it can be done, but it needs to be done because otherwise. Um, you know, well, we're, we're, we're just going to be left with four or five companies basically uh, operating global culture. Thanks for that. Is there anything you'd like to add to what we've discussed? Yeah, I mean, this is it's probably too big to go into. I, I'm, I'm very concerned at the moment with the, the, the overemphasis on inequality in, in arts and culture. And the way in which it's become, I would say, almost become a, what's the word? It, it's We can talk about the inequality of the arts and it avoids some of these bigger questions. And, and I, you know, uh, the, 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 there's been a lot of kind of focus recently on, you know, the middle class domination of culture, middle class domination of the arts. And, you know, well, I don't, yes, of course. But on the other hand, you know, where's the middle class these days? 
you know, the middle class is in free fall, certainly the professional middle class is in free fall. The, 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 the powers of the economy and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the rich, the people, you know, the, the top 10%, top 20% are not interested in arts and culture, particularly somehow as a niche thing. So, I, I, but it's locking, especially academics get locked into this concern with the inequality of, of art. And actually there's a huge bigger picture, some of which I've tried to talk about. There's a huge bigger picture that we need to address quite urgently and and it's really is um it's 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 really a time to for us to go back and be political about the cultural economy not just about the arts which is just a, a bit of a sideshow in many ways that but really to get to repoliticize some of the questions not just you know to hang the middle classes and think we've solved the question so that that's just one of my bugbears at the moment well, I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Justin. It's been great chatting to you. I think I've learned a lot, and I hope you'll come back to the pod at some point in the future. Yeah, well, no, thank you. It's my it's my first um, podcast on this. I'm about to go to the UK, so um doing a bit of a round. So it was great to um, come at this, you know, through your, your, you know, very nice hosting of this, by the way. So I'm very, very appreciative of it.